Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Tuesday, November 23rd, 2021. On today's episode of the show, we're going to have a mini water cooler episode and talk about what we've been up to recently. My name is Ben Pearson. I'm a senior writer at SlashFilm.com, and I'm joined on today's episode by Slash Film senior news editor, Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. Jacob, welcome back to Slash Film. You have been gone for a little while. Why don't you tell me what you've been doing? Yeah, I went my first vacation in a good long time, and we decided, my wife and I, just to you know, keep it simple and not travel too much. We went to a resort on the edge of Austin in, in the Texas Hill Country, one of those places that's, you know, perched in the hills overlooking, you know, beautiful Texas skies and landscapes and trees and rolling massive hills and a place where there are pools and hot tubs and a spa and fire pits at night and lots of restaurants and alcohol, all overpriced, of course. But, you know, I I did a week of nothing. I did, you know, the first half of my vacation was at home doing nothing. Then I... Went to a resort and did nothing. And that sounds it, glorious. <laughs> I mean, I, I had a a very powerful European woman whose accent I cannot place pummel my back for too much money. Uh, and then I <laughs> laid poolside while I read books all day, while I drank alcohol. And it was just just what I needed. And, you know, since it was a resort off-season, I was able to, you know, keep a distance from crowds, you know, and, and feel like I was doing something responsible as opposed to traveling in an airport. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Man, that's great news. Uh, so it also says here that you bought in our in our uh, shared document, uh, it says that you bought a Kindle. Yeah, my, my, my wife pointed this out, which is I told her I want to spend my entire vacation reading. I want to do pretty much read nonstop. And she said, that's great. Uh, but one of the one of the most exciting things about this resort for us was fire pits at night. You can't read a book, you know, at night, even by firelight. You'll, you'll, you'll damage your eyes. It's hard. Mm-hmm. It's not fun. So even though I am a ride or die physical book person, my wife said, you, you should get a Kindle for a situation like this, where you can uh, have an e-reader and always have some extra books in hand in case in a situation where uh, you don't have a regular book or you're reading in the dark or something like that. And, you know, and she was right. My, my wife uh, reads a lot too, but she reads entirely ebooks. So in addition to being the guy who's always buying too many physical books, I now have a Kindle. 
and I read my first ebook on it. In addition to I, 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 I fulfilled my lifelong dream of having a New Yorker subscription by doing it my Kindle now. So I don't feel guilty about having to throw away all the all the magazine copies. So I subscribed to Texas Monthly and uh, and New Yorker through my Kindle. So that's I'm using it as my magazine device and as my backup book device. And you know what? I I know there's a lot not a lot of not nice a lot of uh not nice things to say about Amazon right now, but that, those Kindles they really do work, especially when you're reading outside in the night. So I really it's not going to replace physical books, but it's going to accentuate the experience. I was going to ask you if you're like a, a full on convert now after no uh, okay even even my wife she'll read a book on her, on an ebook and if she likes it she'll buy a physical copy so we can have it on the shelf. We we are we're library people. We like having physical books. Yeah. Nice, nice, nice. All right, so tell me about some of those books that you read. You read so many books, Jacob. I follow you on, on, on uh, Instagram, and I was just blown away because like, it seemed like every day you were posting a new picture of like, yep, finish this book, finish this book. And I'm like, man, he is really making the most out of this vacation. I'm, I was jealous of how many books you were churning through. So which ones uh, made the most impact on you? Yeah, um, I, this is not all of them. This is most of them, though. Um, I read The Deep by Nick Cutter. Uh, Nick Cutter is uh, the pseudonym of uh, another writer. I can't remember his actual name, but he has three different pseudonyms. He's just split them up by genre, it looks like. And uh, Nick Cutter uh, is a writer of horror fiction. And The Deep is his second novel. And uh, Ben, it's the most messed up book I've ever read. Uh, I, I, mean, I, I feel like that we'd have to pause right there because that seems like it's a pretty huge statement. You read a lot, Jacob. Yeah. Um, I, this, his, his books have like, you know, praise from Stephen King, Clive Barker on them. And I'd say he's more into Clive Barker school than Stephen King. Stephen King ultimately believes in people. He ultimately believes that, you know, things will be okay in the end. If you read his work, it always kind of floats out that way with only a handful of exceptions. Whereas Clive, the Clive Barker school of horror is, the universe is a messed up place. Is going to grind you, grind you into, into mush and spit you out. <laughs> and uh, that's, that's the kind of writing that Nick Cutter does. The, the deep, it it is such a wild premise. It, it is set uh, in in a, I guess a near future world where a a plague is decimating humanity. It's causing people to forget things. Um, first, they'll forget their social security number, or they'll forget you know um, their birthday. But soon, they'll forget to stop the red lights, and they'll forget how to eat. They'll forget how to take care of themselves, and they waste away and die. And this is a raging epidemic. And uh, a genius scientist believes he has found a cure for it, uh, but the only way, the only place to, to find it, for reasons that are explained in the book, is in a laboratory built in the Challenger Deep in the middle of the Marianas Trench, the deepest part of the ocean. Uh, and one day, his uh, he, him and his team stopped communicating with the surface. So his brother, who's a blue-collar veterinarian, is called in to, to go down and investigate and, and try to figure out what happened to his brother, uh, who, who's the only cure to, to solving this plague. And so this, so what seems like sort of this plague horror story, like, like The Stand, becomes the abyss for a little bit as they head underwater to like the deepest part of the ocean. Wow. And then it becomes a bit like it as the station underwater is home to their, their literal nightmares coming to life, but also to all kinds of uh, David Cronenbergian body horror that gets increasingly upsetting as it goes along. And eventually it becomes shades of annihilation, shades of the thing. And I feel like I started making mental notes of what it was reminding me of. And I realized, oh, it's reminding me of so much that it might as well be its own thing. You know, that, that kind of mm-hmm, thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, the last third of this book gets so viscerally unpleasant and so viscerally upsetting with how it depicts its violence uh, that I was like, like I couldn't put it down. I was like, oh my god, I can't, I, I can't believe I'm reading something this messed up. It's also really well written and really engaging. I found myself really on board with the story. Uh, 
so much so that I'm I'm immediately reading his uh, next book, uh, The Troop, which uh, James Wan has bought the film rights to uh, to produce uh, with E.L. Katz, the director of Cheap Thrills, uh, on board to uh, on board to direct. I thought, oh, maybe they bought this one because it's less upsetting, less violent, less uh, less disturbing. And the answer is no. <laughs> so <laughs> I I can't imagine filmmakers touching the deep with a ten foot pole because it is so messed up. Um, but I I would love it if somebody gave it a shot. I I I post this on Twitter and Instagram. My my, my best way to describe it is: What if a Michael Crichton book was sent to the Hell Dimension from Event Horizon? That's kind of <laughs> what the team reads like. And I, if you have a, if you have a strong stomach and are looking for like horror that's like genuinely upsetting, not like not like you know I like a good spooky horror story, but like mess you up horror. I really <laughs> recommend Nick Cutter and the Deep is a good place to start. Man, I feel like people, listeners have just gotten their their money's worth for this free episode based on that single recommendation alone. But uh, what else did you read while you're uh, uh, Jacob? I read Fan Fiction, uh, a new book by Brent Spiner, who's best known as the actor who played Data on Star Trek Next Generation, the TV series and its movies. And this is described uh, as a mem noir. It is not a memoir. It's a mem noir because after the first chapter, which is Brent Spiner's origin story, where he explains, you know, how he went to New York. He was a Jewish kid from Houston who came from an abusive home, uh, abusive stepfather. He fled New York City, came a stage actor, drove a cab, went to L.A. to try to change things up. He was cast in Star Trek. And then at the end of the first chapter says, this entire chapter has been true. Uh, the rest of the book is not, may, may or may not be true. <laughs> and the rest of the book is uh, set during the filming of season four of Star Trek Generation, all told from Brent Spiner's point of view. The rest of the Star Trek cast members are all supporting characters in it. Uh, Gene Roddenberry, the creator of Star Trek, is a character in it. Uh, there are other real people, but also lots of fake people because the book opens with him receiving a death threat from a fan uh, and involves him being plunged into a mystery and a love triangle, this sort of film noir uh, plot to kill to kill Brent Spiner uh, during season four of Star Trek Next Generation. And from that point on, it becomes a real mixture of of like thriller mystery story really goofy comedy and also actual memoir. You can start to see like the edges of the truth peek in where Brent Spiner will whiplash from, you know, um, wacky going on to like comedic set pieces and murder mystery stuff to like remembering his abusive dad, his abusive stepdad, you know, whipping him as a kid or, you know, uh, things that are like observations about filming Star Trek that were very real to him or him being a psychiatrist who ends up helping him solve a key part of the, of the mystery, but not before telling him that all this, uh, on a spectrum and autistic patients look up to data as a hero. So it, it feels like he's Brent Spiner. If you follow him on social media or, or see him at events, it's a very sarcastic, dry, caustic sense of humor. He's very self-deprecating. He's very, very silly. He always seems like the couch things and jokes. So fan fiction is really feels like he wanted to get things off his chest. He wanted to talk about, about being an actor and working on Star Trek and being and realizing that, you know, his, his character on the, on the show, this Android was, being looked up to by autistic kids, mm-hmm. but he also didn't couldn't bring himself to write a memoir, so he, he put it in the middle of a murder mystery. Yeah, <laughs> um, I mean that that is fascinating. I've never heard of a a sort of like blend of fiction and memoir in quite that way before. Like, was it? A, a, I mean, it sounds like a super entertaining read. But did did you enjoy the experience of it, or did you feel like, man, I wish this was just one thing or the other? As a Star Trek fan, I, I loved it. I can't recommend it. If you don't know who Brent Spiner's name is, you probably wouldn't enjoy it. He, I don't think he's, he's not a good enough of a thriller writer to make the thriller aspects, you know, stand out. But, um, the idea of the book's sense of humor, um, if you, uh, the, the, the moment that stands out to me is the point where, where Patrick Stewart, who plays Jean-Luc Picard on Star Trek, approaches Brent Spiner 
uh, after Brent has told the cast there's a death threat out against him. He wants to warn them all. And Patrick Stewart is at first very offended that Brent's spying a death threat, not him. Um, <laughs> and then Patrick Stewart says, you know, as a member of the Royal Shakespeare Company, we all learn martial arts. I can train you how to kill a man. <laughs> so it's, it's, that's, that's the book's sense of humor. If, that sound, if you like Star Trek and that sounded funny to you, then, then you'll enjoy fan fiction. <laughs> Okay, all right, let's move on to your next uh, book here. Yeah, this is a book called Forget the Alamo. It was written by a trio of Texas journalists. And this book first came to, my, first came to be known to me when the writers were going to do an event at an Austin museum to promote it. And the right-wing outrage and threats were so extreme, the museum canceled it. Uh, and when I read it, I get why. Because Forget the Alamo is a blistering... Uh, not even deconstruction, a reconstruction of what the Alamo actually was. And those of you who may or may not know, the Alamo was well, a key battle uh, in what was dubbed at the time the Texas Revolution, where uh, mostly white you know, settlers of northern Mexico and Texas territory overthrew the shackles of Mexican oppression, which is the story that you, you're taught in Texas schools and the story that's been taught in Alamo movies and so on. And the book very painstakingly lays out that that's all not true. The Alamo is a complete fabrication in terms of how it's taught and how the legend goes. And it all boils down to white supremacy. Wouldn't you know it, Ben? All white supremacy. Uh, it's all about white supremacists came in, came to northern Mexico, flaunted Mexican laws, demanded to have their slaves. And when Mexicans said, you can't have slaves in our, in our, in our country where we outlawed slavery, they rose up in revolt and murdered Texas soldiers and started a war. Um, so it, it, the, the book goes from the Texas revolt, as they prefer to call it, not the Texas revolution, all the way up until modern day, up until last year, where um, a hapless government bureaucrat in charge of trying to renovate the Alamo into a proper museum is facing fire from all sides. Uh, and that hapless government bureaucrat is George P. Bush, the son of Jeb Bush. Um, <laughs> so it's literally a complete history of the Alamo, uh, not sure, a complete history of the Alamo myth uh, uh, in terms of what actually happened. Who were, who were these people actually defending the Alamo? What was the fight actually like? What what, what how did it get so twisted? And the answer is white supremacy. The answer is white supremacy, white supremacy, white supremacy. And it's it's and the, the book is um, not written like a history book. It's written to be very not fun's the wrong word for this material, but it's very accessible. It's it's written uh, to be more journalistic than historian and saying and trying to like welcome as many readers as possible. It's never dry. It's written in a way that uh, is really invites you in. And since it's written by three Texas writers, like three guys who really genuinely love texas and love living in texas but also are very much aware that hey we shouldn't lie to ourselves because this is because we like living here we should be mm-hmm. honest with, with, with our state which is how i sit i love living in texas i love being a texan but this state has a lot of messed up history and i think this book goes a really long way to putting on the record the things that are you know true and false about the alamo so that's uh, forget the alamo a book i highly recommend man yeah that sounds like a really cool uh corrective i guess is maybe the word for it um all right you also read something called the hellbound heart yes, i've never heard uh, of this one the hellbound heart ben you've heard of the hellbound heart it's what uh uh horror writer clive barker who i mentioned earlier um adapted his own short book into the movie hellraiser oh uh, oh yeah. of course yes so and this is a very short book it's t- technically a novella it's like 150 pages and it, it turns out that Clive Barker was very faithful to his own work adapting into Hellraiser. I think Hellraiser is a great movie. The first one is terrific. And this is a really good book. And it follows the events very, very closely. There are some key changes. Like uh, the character who's a daughter in the uh, movie is a family friend in the book. Uh, so there are some changes like that. But otherwise, it's uh, it's very interesting to see what was promoted and elevated from this book and what was you know pushed back. Like, for example, the... Uh, the, the the figurehead of the, Hell, of the Hellraiser franchise, Pinhead, as he's called by horror fans, is barely a figure in the book. He's like a, a background monster. He doesn't he doesn't even have the main lines as other characters in it. Uh, so it's very it's it's very compelling as somebody who loves Hellraiser to go read Hellbound Heart and see how it was adapted. So you can read it in like ninety minutes if you're like you know a reasonably fast <laughs> reader. Um, 
but yeah, uh, if, if you're already a fan of Clive Barker, who, and I, I think he's one of the best horror writers of all time, or you're a Hellraiser fan who's seen the movie and want to know where it came from, Hellbound Heart's a really interesting study in adaptation to, to, see, to sort of see how a artist, you know, approached his own work. Yeah, man, that sounds cool. Uh, all right, so Lola on Fire is the next one up. Uh, yeah, uh, Lola on Fire, or as I call it, uh, Mom Wick. Um, <laughs> uh this book, it's going to be it's going to be adapted to a movie. Someone's going to adapt to the movie, and they're going to give an actress in her late forties or early fifties a Keanu Reeves esque chance to be a total badass. That's what the that's what this book is. And I don't want to say too much. It's what uh, it's written by Real Yours, who is a relatively new writer. I think he's only a second book. His third book comes out next year. And this is one of the best written action books I've ever read. It's not high art. It's just a really compulsive, propulsive page turner. A really great like uh, beach read, like ultimate beach read. It, it just Real Yours is so good at writing action. Uh, the action scenes in this book are just so violent and so so John Wick esque. I feel like I feel like we've talked a lot about John Wick, John Wick post John Wick cinema. It's really like a post John Wick novel and how the action is written. And uh, instead of Keanu Reeves, it's a woman in her you know late forties, early fifties. And that's all I'll say. I don't want to say anything else about Lola on Fire because I generally I reached page one hundred thirty something, and that's when the plot kicked in. And I realized, oh, that's what I'm reading. It was a very hmm. pleasant surprise for me to realize the structure of this book and how everything fit together. So I'm not going to say anything else uh, beyond that, other than to say that read this before the movie comes out because no one's even bought the film rights yet, but they will. <laughs> and the trailer is <laughs> going to give away the structure of this story and how it's told. Gotcha. All right. So that's Lola on Fire, and then what do you have next? Uh, next is Stormfront, which is the uh, uh, Ben. Have you heard of the Dresden Files? I feel like I have. What is that? Uh, the Dresden Files is a long-running book series that I've avoided for years because I knew I'd probably like it. Uh, I didn't want to get involved into a, a massive uh, book series with so many entries. Uh, it is essentially a noir detective series by a detective in Chicago who works as a police consultant, solves mysteries, you know, does uh, mis- helps out with cases, sits in his office, you know, with with his coat on, uh, you know, like like and. And waits for cases to walk into his front door to help him pay the rent. You know, a classic noir detective story, except that he's also a wizard. Um, he's literally a, a wizard in modern day Chicago who uh, solves supernatural mysteries. He um, is uh, he he helped like in the first book. He's uh, helped. There's a, a multiple homicide that stumped the police because it's black magic, and the police don't know how to solve black magic. So he's, he's hired to help solve that case, or like, and he's doing things like interrogating fairies and meeting with vampires, and essentially. Uh, it's just, it's a direct collision of like modern day fantasy with you know very traditional detective tropes. Hmm. The writing itself is, is is pretty good. J- Jim Butcher is a pretty good thriller writer, but he has a lot of imagination. And even though I was I feel like I was always one step ahead of the mystery, I kind of knew where this, where this mystery was going pretty early on. Uh, it's just something undeniably fun about you know a very traditional you know you know down on his luck noir detective in modern day Chicago also being a guy who instead of taking his 38 you know out and out in the streets when he's feeling threatened grabs a magical staff you know and, and so uh now i need to read the other seventeen thousand books in the series because he's been writing this like 20 years and he writes like one book a year and like without fail so that's stormfront which it also they also will say they made a um dress and files tv series that was very short-lived in the early 2000s on the sci-fi channel and i think nowadays i, I feel like Modern television, I think, is a better fit for Dresden Files based on his first book than, you know, television circuit, you know, 20, uh, 2005. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it definitely sounds like it. And I, I was just looking into the Slash Film archives and searching Dresden Files while you were talking because I was like, I feel like we've written something up about that. And there was in 2018, there was talk of another Dresden Files show maybe being in the works, but I don't think that's come together since then. So I'm not sure what the status of it is now, but, uh, but yeah, so there's that. Uh, and then there's one more book that you read. One too, more right? book. This one will probably be of, of, of interest to uh, slash. It's, it's made men, uh, by Glenn, film critic Glenn Kenny. Uh, 
it's about the history of Goodfellas, about how Goodfellas was made. I know Chris has talked about the show on this book on the show before, so I won't be too long. Except that I know Chris loved it. I did not love Made Men, and it's because. Uh, even though the author has numerous interviews with people who are involved, like he, he's, he talks to Scorsese, um, talks to people who are involved in lots of scenes. Uh, the book kind of has his head up his butt in a pretty extreme way where the author cannot wait a page without saying, without making sure you know that he's friends with somebody who was involved in the scene. Or he lets you know that uh, I want to do a Q&A with so-and-so about this movie. Mm. Uh, it, 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 and like, it's so self-indulgent. It pauses constantly. For the author to let you know that he is uh, he's that he he's closer to Goodfellas than you'll ever be. Don't and it's just if it was just a history of the making of Goodfellas, it's a really remarkable read at times. But the author inserts himself as a character frequently into the, into the narrative in a way that I found really really frustrating. Like, like nobody cares that you yeah. were an editor at a, a premiere magazine God. and gave Martin Scorsese a, a call on the rival Goodfellas, but he, <laughs> he he makes sure you knew that. He makes sure you know that. So, do you remember the book Peter Jackson and the Making of Middle Earth? Did you ever read this? Uh, no, I remember, I, remember, I, remember, I remember seeing on shelves, I remember you talking about it, but I have not read it. Yeah, that was my biggest complaint about that book because the author, Ian Nathan, does the exact same thing. It's like the information that he imparts uh, about the making of the thing is really good and valuable and interesting and like exactly what you buy the store, buy the book for. But so much of it, it's, it feels like a, you know a third of the book or something is just him centering himself in the narrative in a way that just feels like uh, just like totally completely unnecessary and like really um, like kind of gross to be honest. So uh, yeah, it sounds like this book suffers from that same thing a little bit. Yeah. And, and, and like he talks about how like he had, he got access to um, Robert De Niro's papers, which include his, Robert De Niro's annotated script of Goodfellas full of all Robert De Niro's notes. And yet he spends less time on Robert De Niro's notes than he does on, uh, than on speaking with, somebody who's an extra in the background of one scene. Mm. And it's like, it's it's things like that where it's just like an editor needed to kick this book in the pants. Yeah. And I I don't understand it. I I wish I could recommend made men because there's really good information in here. If you're a good fellows fan, then there's, there's a lot of stuff in here, but like there's one chapter, Ben, where the entire thing is a breakdown in every song in the good fellows, which is like, you know, a lot of songs. You think that'd be interesting, but he doesn't dive into like the choice of that song or the thematics of that song or why song works in the movie. All he does is, Here's the name of the song. Here's the artist. Here's a paragraph about the history of the song. Like mm. it doesn't even tie in the Goodfellas. I skipped that chapter. I never skip chapters. In books. Yeah, there's no point in that. Oh, wow. Uh, well, that's disappointing. It sounds like a definitely a mixed bag on that one. But um, if you can find it super cheap, you know, you, there's you, 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 like you can skim certain chapters. But it's just like the middle of the book. The meat of the book is literally a scene by scene breakdown of all of Goodfellas, explaining like how it went into making of each scene. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the strongest part of the book by far. Um, yeah, that's the, the part where also where since he wasn't on the set, the author can't insert himself in that section as often. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Uh, well, let's transition into what we've been watching. I've been watching a bunch of stuff, Jacob. Uh, I watched a 1987 movie called No Way Out that is on Amazon Prime Video right now. I highly recommend seeking this film out for you specifically, but also for all of our listeners. It is really, really like top shelf neo-noir stuff. So Kevin Costner, uh, Sean Young, and Gene Hackman are the stars of this movie. And it's like about a love triangle between these characters. It's set in Washington, D.C. And Kevin Costner's character plays this sort of like Navy golden boy character who ends up forming this romantic relationship with this woman that he meets. And then he realizes that she is sleeping with the secretary of defense. And that's played, that character is played by Gene Hackman. And then the woman ends up dead and Costner's character is framed for the murder. And he has to 
figure out who actually killed this woman and what's going on. It's, it's very like, um, you know, in that description, it makes it seem very formulaic. But Roger Donaldson, who directed Cocktail and The Recruit, directed this. And I think his his filmography is not great. He, he also directed stuff like uh, The the November Man with Pierce Brosnan like several years ago. Um, but I think this is one of his best movies. And this movie is like one of the best neo-noirs of the entire 1980s. It's like, it is one of those things that knows exactly what it wants to be and just uh, it doesn't even take a minute to settle into its groove. It is immediately in its groove and just firing on all cylinders the entire time. It, it's really, really great. Um, the The dynamics between all the characters are great. That the pacing is especially wonderful, which is really what you what you want in a mystery thriller like this. And then there's also some sort of uh, laughably fun, um, you know, 1980s technology. Like there's this whole subplot where. Uh, a character takes a picture of Kevin Costner in a, in a compromising location, a Polaroid. And uh, later on, another character discovers that sort of uh, jacked up Polaroid that was pulled out of the camera a little bit too soon. So it's sort of messed up and you can't quite see what's going on. So they decide to run it through their super high tech Pentagon computer system. And it's one of those, it's basically the, uh, the encapsulation of the zoom and enhance trope where, where it's like uh, they, they blow it up the, the uh, computer graphics stuff. They blow it up on this giant monitor in the basement of the Pentagon. And it's slowly coming into focus more and more. Like that's not exactly how things uh, work now, but, uh, and maybe it wasn't even exactly how things worked in 1987. Tech, tech wise when this movie came out but uh it serves as a really cool like uh visual ticking clock for costner's character to um you know solve this mystery before people realize that he's the person in the photo and it might um you know compromise his position or whatever so uh the movie is called no way out it's on amazon right now and i would definitely recommend checking this one out yeah i feel like i've never heard of this because like, the title is generic enough that i feel like it just goes in one eye and out one ear yeah yeah <laughs> but, but this sounds like one of those was one of those movies that, considering everybody involved, including a director who's not, who's not made many other interesting movies, is one of those right time, right place things. I feel like just one of those like undersung little magic tricks. It really is, and I I want to talk to you about it more after you watch it, Jacob, because there's just like so many little grace notes in the movie that I think um, that I think really add to the whole thing, and it, it's just one of those. Yeah, like you said, it, it's it was the movie that came out at the perfect time. Uh, it catches it catches Kevin Costner at the perfect age for him to be like fully believable in this character, where he's like a little bit of a young sort of punk hotshot kind of guy, but also old enough to be, be believable at this stage in his career where he's supposed to be so um it's yeah very very good stuff so uh no way out check it out i also finally caught up with shang chi that movie um shang chi and the legend of the ten rings uh came to disney plus um when was that disney plus day whenever that was like a couple weeks ago probably at this point uh but was it that long ago (laughs) i I think so yes i mean who knows time is uh is is even more fluid than it ever was or my interpretation of it anyway but uh yeah i finally caught up with this movie i I missed it in theaters because it just wasn't great to be out and about in theaters in florida when this movie was out uh and i enjoyed it for the most part i mean i think there you know the, the big complaint i've seen from everybody seems to be like oh the end sort of devolved into this giant CG nonsense. And I kind of agree with that. Um, but I, I think there's enough artistry on display here and enough, enough uh, specificity in the character work and the performances, especially from Tony Leung and uh, and Simo Liu, who, who stars in the movie, um, that I I bought it for the most part. I mean, there's some there's some complaints that I have. Like, there, uh, you, you saw this movie, right, Jacob? Yeah, I think it's good. I, I, I think that there's um, there are issues to be had with it, uh, but I 
think it's you know i'd say b plus tier marvel movie yeah i would i would say yeah like maybe maybe a b i would say um but there, there's so much good stuff in here i mean the the central relationship with aquafina i thought was really well drawn but the uh, the thing that sort of made me laugh watching it and, and roll my eyes a little bit is like Ben Kingsley shows up uh, reprising his role from Iron Man three. And uh, instead of just, you know, giving the, the characters, this movie's real characters, the, the information that they need and then going on his way, he like tags along for the whole story. And then he sort of ingratiates himself into the action at the very end in a kind of a comical way. I mean, I never really hated the fact that he was there because he was like, you know, he's a jovial presence as this character, this sort of drunken uh, English actor character. So I, I, I didn't mind the fact that he was there. It's sort of strange credulity, even within the realm of the MCU that he would be tagging along into this like ancient, uh, you know, mystical world or whatever. And then the thing that really made me laugh is at the very end, um, you know, after the, the climactic battle, the surviving heroes, uh, light these, um, these candles and put them in like little lanterns and send them off into the water. And it's this really you know, like somber moment where they're, you know, each of the characters who are doing this, you can tell that they are doing it in remembrance of a specific person that we've seen them interact with on screen before. And it's like supposed to be this sort of moving, uh, moving thing. And then all of a sudden <laughs> Ben Kingsley is there just like putting one into the water. It's like, okay, you could have easily just maybe stayed in the background for that one. Ben Kingsley. <laughs> I don't, I don't really think you need to be part of this specific moment. Uh, but yeah, in general, I, I liked this movie. I liked the, the chemistry, like I said, um, especially with, um, Aquafina and Simu Liu, who I, I think are going to be, you know, significant parts of the MCU going forward. And I'm excited to see what they do and, and how they sort of bounce off the other characters that Kevin Feige and company decide to, uh, you know, ping pong them off of um, moving forward. So I, I, yeah, I think there are some, some drawbacks like most Marvel movies, uh, but uh, like the action is, is pretty solid. I don't know. Everybody's like losing their minds over the action in this movie. And it's pretty good. Yeah, it, it's pretty good. It's like the hand to hand stuff is certainly better than what we see in a lot of, uh, a lot of Marvel movies, but like compared to the old school Jackie Chan stuff, which I've seen a lot of people doing, especially because it shared a stunt coordinator like Brad Allen, who passed away right before this movie came out, was part of the Jackie Chan stunt team. Uh, you can see his influence in the movie, but like if you compare the two, I mean, th- there's really no comparison. <laughs> like there's still so much CG nonsense, uh, even in the the you know e- even before the the giant uh, CG creatures get involved in the in the climactic um, battle or whatever so uh pretty pretty good yeah i'll give it a b um all right so i also i knew tick tick boom was coming out on netflix and this movie is about jonathan larson who is the creator of rent the super famous musical that had a, a film adaptation in 2005 uh have you seen rent jacob do you know anything about rent I've seen the movie version. Uh, I have not seen the. I've not seen it on stage. Okay, so uh, I had never seen Rent before. My sister was sort of grew up in musical theater, and and I remember her listening to the songs from Rent when I was growing up. You know, sort of alongside her. Uh, but knowing that Tick Tick Boom came out, I figured this would be an instance where I should probably see Rent before I saw Tick Tick Boom, just to see if there's any you know. I guess, for lack of a better term, Easter eggs, references, or, or whatever, you know, if, if Tick, Tick, Boom um, 
uh, you know, informed to see how Rent sort of uh, how it all the, the picture came together, basically. Uh, so I watched Rent and Rent is terrible, Jacob. I don't know how else to say it. Uh, I know this is a movie. It's, that- it's a bad movie. I can't, I can't speak for the show. I, I, the show has, has a different energy on stage, so I can't speak to it. But it's a terrible movie. Yeah, it's really, um, you know, I, I, I always feel weird about this because I know that like Rent is a, a seminal text for a lot of people. And like, like you, I've never seen it on stage. But uh, yeah, just keeping it solely to the movie, it is uh, Chris Columbus directed this and it is just like inert. The characters are, um, uh, several of them feel miscast and uh, just very... Um, it's a sluggish movie. It's like it's Chris Columbus does not know how to direct a musical. Uh, I think the music in that movie and the music in the stage show for Rent was revolutionary for its time, and it, it like crystallized some ideas that audiences maybe hadn't heard articulated in that way before. But uh, man, watching it in 2021 for the first time um, is just a it's a very strange experience, and and it's not one it's not a an experience that I. Uh, enjoyed in really any way um there's a whole thing about like the controversial legacy that this movie has um vox had a really good article about it maybe i'll try to link to it in the show notes but it it sort of tracks the the backlash to rent and there's one part where it says uh writer sarah shulman believing larson had plagiarized her 1990 novel people in trouble writes a scathing critique of modern theater called stage struck theater aids and the marketing of gay america in which she argues that rent is emblematic of a broader trend in queer narratives being appropriated capitalized upon and sanitized by straight white america and i i felt a lot of that reaction while i was watching it for the first time um so yeah i'll link to that article and and there it it has several links within it that uh, can sort of point people to a lot of different um, conversation points surrounding the, the whole larger discussion about rent and its legacy. But uh, yeah, as a movie, woof, um, really, really <laughs> terrible stuff from Chris Columbus. Would not recommend. Yeah, I, I'm. Look, I, I'm. I'm going to. People are going to get mad at me for saying this, but I would empathize with characters who are like, man, I'm really i'm working hard and struggling to pay my rent but it's asking me to say like feel for these characters who just have no interest in paying their rent which yeah, i don't have yeah. any interest I, have a, I just have a hard time with that as somebody who's worked very very hard to pay my rent I, I i hate the glorification of people who are working very hard not to pay their rent yeah it's uh it's sorry a, i'm sorry no. I, I don't people put the target on me i'm sorry so. No, I mean, I, I can't deny having that same thought when I watched it as well. So you're, you're certainly not the only one. Um, all right. So on the other hand, Tick, Tick, Boom is great. It's like one of my favorite movies of 2021. Uh, I'm I'm sure you haven't had a chance to see it yet, Jake, because I think it just came out and you're, you're still on vacation. But yeah, I'm going to try um, to watch it. Um, fingers crossed tonight or tomorrow. Man, Andrew Garfield is just so, so good in this. And, and Lin-Manuel Miranda, I thought, I think he does a great job here behind the camera. This is his feature directorial debut. Um it's written by Stephen Levinson, who I think wrote Dear Evan Hansen earlier this year, which I, I did, avoided yes. like the plague <laughs> because I heard such terrible things about that. Um, and and hating the movie version of Rent as much as I did. And then watching Tick, Tick, Boom, I was just, uh, it's like whiplash, like just being like this guy that Andrew Garfield is playing is the person who wrote Rent because he also wrote Tick, Tick, Boom, which is this sort of autobiographical story about how he was struggling to be a playwright and and uh, in New York City in the early '90s, and the story of Tick Tick Boom is just so captivating, and the direction is so great. And you know, looking at this through the Lin Manuel Miranda lens, both this movie and Hamilton are about the 
push-pull between wanting a family and having this burning desire to do something like quote unquote great with your life, which I think is a really interesting theme that I'm curious to see if that continues throughout uh, Miranda's, you know, the rest of his career. Um, but man, Tick, Tick, Boom, it just has this like vitality and immediacy and energy to the whole thing just, that just feels so um, like completely opposite uh, in like in aesthetic to what uh, the the movie version of Rent did. So uh, yeah, I, I highly recommend checking out Tick, Tick, Boom. Even if you're not like a huge musical person, um, this one I think is, I don't know. There are definitely some things in here that uh, there's one scene where it has like um, the Avengers of uh, musical theater people coming in to do cameos for one scene. And I didn't really know who any of those people were, but I was like, oh, this must be what it's like for people to go into, you know, the MCU and just skip everything, but watch movie 22 or something and like not understand, uh, knowing that like the movie thinks that these people are important, but not having any like basis for who they are or what they did or anything. So um, there were, there were a couple that I could pinpoint, you know, cast members from Hamilton, for example, but uh, not being a, a scholar of musical theater, um, there were several that went over my head, which is totally fine. And and the rest of the movie, you know, it's not like the film hinges on that in any way. It's a nice, like, that's like the ideal example of what an Easter egg is to me. It's just something that like, you know, heightens things for the people is a special experience for people who knows what it is. And it's not sidelined the story in any way for people who don't. Uh, so tick, tick, boom, great, great stuff. Definitely. I, I mean, it's going to be, I guess we're heading into the period where like a bunch of quote unquote good movies are coming out soon or, or will be coming out very, very soon. And, uh, or our art are out right now. And, um, I don't know right now, this movie is on my best of the year list. So we'll see if it stays there by the, the end of the year. Uh, And then finally, I just wanted to mention a film called The Novice that is coming out, I think, on December 17th. So not too long. Um, This is an indie movie. I think IFC Films is releasing it. Isabel Furman, who starred in, uh, what's the movie, Um, Jacob? Do you you recognize her name? Uh, Orphan. She she starred in Orphan. I remember her vividly from Orphan. How could could I ever forget (laughs) the lead of Orphan? I mean, quite literally, how could I ever forget the lead of Orphan? (laughs) Not even jokingly. Yeah, yeah. So she stars in this movie, and um, it, it's written and directed by Lauren Hathaway, and it's based on her uh, Hathaway's experiences as a collegiate uh, rowing athlete. Um, I don't remember the actual term for for what that is, but um, it, I thought this is a really really good movie. It's it's basically Whiplash on the water, um, but whereas Whiplash is sort of about the single-minded obsession of Miles Teller's character and and the relationship that he has with playing the drums and wanting to be like the greatest drummer of all time. This movie, uh, Isabel Furman's character joins the rowing team at her college and wants to be, you know, a a varsity athlete, but there's enough about her character that you get the sense that this is not the only thing that she has ever latched onto with such intensity. So I thought that was an interesting distinction between this movie and whiplash, which I know it's, it's gotten a lot of um, comparisons to that film. I feel like it's kind of inevitable because uh, Damien Chazelle who wrote and directed whiplash based that movie off his experiences as a drummer and, and, you know, uh, dealing with a really oppressive and, and um, you know, intense uh, drumming, teacher or whatever. And Hathaway did the same thing here, you know, basing this on her own experiences as a, um, a collegiate athlete. So, uh, but yeah, it's, it's very good. I mean, it's, it's a comparatively small movie. Um, it's probably going to slip through a lot of people's, uh, uh, you know, 
uh, slip between the cracks for a lot of people. But um, I, I think the central performance is great. And I think the writing and directing is really interesting. So I just wanted to put it on people's radar. It's called The Novice and it comes out uh, December 17th. So check that out. That one out if you can. All right. Uh, that's enough for me. Jacob, what have you been watching? Uh, pretty much nothing, unless you count uh, having Edge of Tomorrow on the background of the commercials while I was reading at the hotel. <laughs> um, but before before I left for vacation, though, I did see the French Dispatch, which I want to talk about briefly. This is Wes Anderson's new movie, and I'm I I loved this movie. I love Wes Anderson in general, and I guess I was frustrated about the conversation around the French Dispatch because the conversation was only man Wes Anderson made another Wes Anderson movie, huh? Wes Anderson, how Wes Anderson can Wes Anderson yet? Ha ha ha! And it bugged me because that. It just sort of like sort of writes off what Wes Anderson does well. It starts saying like, yeah, he's doing his thing. Watch Wes Anderson do his thing as opposed to acknowledging, oh, his thing is really special and only he can do it. Only he can do it well. And he's still doing it well after all these years. Uh, anyway, I think the Friends Dispatch uh, really tickled me as somebody, as, as a person who has mentioned at the top of the show, has a subscription to The New Yorker. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm the target audience for the French Dispatch. Uh, but also I found it really moving and really funny. I think the third segment, uh, that is, it's where Jeffrey Wright is the main character. It's a sort of an anthology movie, uh, was really moving and special. And uh, some of the best stuff Edison's ever done, which is saying a lot because I think he's one of the finest living filmmakers around right now. So if you're writing this one off because people are just saying, oh, more Wes Anderson than... Uh, Wes Anderson is great and this continues to be great. So yeah, that's all I have to say about French Dispatch right now. Excellent. All right. Yeah. I'm really looking forward to checking this one out. I think it comes out pretty soon. I don't have the exact dates in front of me. I'll try to write that in the show notes as well. If people are looking forward to that one and hadn't seen and have not caught up with it yet. All right. I think that's going to bring us to the end of today's episode of the show. You can find more about all the movies that we mentioned on today's show at SlashFilm.com and linked inside the show notes of this episode. SlashFilm Daily is published every weekday, bringing the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site. You can subscribe to the show on Apple, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns, and mailbag topics to us at peter at SlashFilm.com. Make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. Don't forget to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Tell your friends, spread the word. Thank you all for listening, and we will talk to you tomorrow. Baseball fans, BetMGM is giving you the chance to win a prize every day during the baseball season. Step into the batter's box for BetMGM Swing for the Fences free-to-play game. Pick any area of the strike zone and take your best swing. If you get a single, double, triple, or home run, you'll receive a prize. Smash a home run to collect a bonus bet on us. Just log into your BetMGM Sports account to get started. Then visit your promotion section to access the Swing for the Fences free-to-play game. You'll score a prize if you hit a single, double, triple, or home run. There's nothing more exciting than going yard. So swing for the fences with the king of sportsbooks. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. Must be 21 plus and present in Ohio. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards vary depending on the market and expire 24 hours from issuance. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER and partnership with MGM Northfield Park.